not fair. And there are beautiful kids like Layla who have not had the best shot at life, but are overcoming that uh, through Jesus. So we're so proud of her. It's also not fair that I have to follow something like that as well. Uh, you know, get the tears out of the corner of your eyes and get straightened up and be able to talk for a while. So, uh, um, but uh, we're, we're blessed to have Crystal and the team uh, that love these kids and work with them. Um, you know, I've said for, several, uh, for many years that one day I'm going to write a book about ministry, about all the crazy experiences I've had and all the crazy people I've met in that. And some of you should be worried because you will be in there. Uh, some of you will be there. You have your own chapter. Um, but, but one thing I'm going to have to admit and include in that is my most embarrassing moment in ministry. And there's been several of them over uh, the, the time that I've, I've served. But um, one of them, like the time early in my ministry, where we used to do prayer concerns. Remember that? In the church, you'd call out your prayer concern. And uh, so we would go through the whole list in a small church. And so this lady was sick, and I announced her dead. And she wasn't dead. Somebody had to correct me. You know, that was not the, the greatest moment there. But my most embarrassing moment was uh, a little more private than that. It was several years ago in Indiana, and one of the teenagers in our church had been involved in a, a horrible accident, a farming accident. He had been trying to clear a, a clog in this drain, a grain elevator, which was a big piece of equipment, uh, drying unit. And he had actually got his arm into an auger, and it was pulling him up into the auger. Um, it could have taken his life very easily. It did a lot of damage to his arm, and he was going to take a lot of out, many hours of surgery to repair that. But he also... He had cut, had a small cut on the side of his head right there on the temple, which was a minor injury. So I was called to the hospital. I always go when emergencies like that. I entered the ER room where the family was, and the doctor was going to sew up that little, um, that little injury. It was small, relatively so, and was going to do it in uh, the ER. And so we're all gathered in there. The family is. Felt a little bit weird thinking about it now, but, but it, it, was, uh, it was bad enough that it had to be sewn up. And it was kind of... It wasn't bad, but it was, it was bad enough. But I stood there with the family, and we're kind of watching. And the doctor is, you know, getting ready to sew it up. And he's taking this needle, and he's injecting a little bit of uh, numbing anesthesia, something in there. I don't know what it was. But um, the more I watched it, the more I couldn't take my eyes off from it. And I just got mesmerized by it, and I just started feeling really sweaty and really weak and really faint. And uh, so I'm a son, you know, I don't even realize what's going on. And the mother, little boy's mother, the teenager's mother looked at me and said, are you okay? And I'm like, no, not. And so she had to take me, the boy's mother had to take the minister out of the ER into another room to find a wheelchair to set me down in it. And I spent, you know, an hour or so there just kind of getting my head. It was not my finest moment in ministry. Let me just say that. I'm a little embarrassed about it. Uh, but I know it, uh, it's probably happened similar to you, but that's going to be in the book, all right? So um, I, I tell you that because blood is going to play a part in our message. We're going to get there, but first of all, we're going to jump in and look at our scripture. Uh, it's in the book of Acts. We're studying through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15 now, and if you've been with us, you know that this is a record of the early church growing, church starting in the early in the book of Acts and the church growing, and we're learning a lot about how the church grew. We're learning about some problems they had. We'll talk about another one today, but the church is going great. It's growing, spreading. Many people are coming to Jesus. They're, they're beginning to win people who normally didn't have a relationship with God. These are Gentile people. For many years, the Jews were the only one that had been chosen by God 
They were the only people that God really dealt with, and you couldn't really come to God unless you became a Jew first. And so it was kind of an exclusive group of people. And, uh, and now the gospel of Jesus is going out everywhere, and everyone can come. And predictably, this is where the next challenge comes for the church. So let's jump in, Acts chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you see this chapter, this section is titled the Jerusalem Council. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a group of people who are making some decisions here about an important and divisive, potentially divisive issue. And basically what's happening is that some of the really strict Jews, they're called Judaizers for obvious reason, they're unhappy with these Gentile Christians, with other people who normally couldn't come to God, now they can, but they're unhappy about that. It just seemed too easy for them to become Christians. I mean, they had been trying hard all their life to be good and do what God said, and now these people are kind of getting like a free pass, they felt like. And so two questions came up. Do Gentiles, first of all, have to become Jews? before they can become Christians, and do Gentiles then have to observe the Mosaic law after they become Christians? Those questions were important to us. They may not seem that big, but in that day, they were very, very important to both groups of people. The Jews were concerned. The Gentiles were concerned as well. What are we going to do about this? What will be the decision? So a group of church leaders come together in Jerusalem to discuss this and resolve the issue. And there was a lot of debate on both sides. You can probably see uh, both sides of that. The Gentiles didn't want to be Jews. They had always kind of been at odds with them. They didn't want to become a Jew. They just want to be a Christian. The Jews were a little bit resentful of these people coming in when they hadn't had to keep all these laws all their life and all their history. So there was a lot of debate on both sides. The Judaizers had the opportunity to present their perspective. And then Paul and Barnabas, who are missionaries we talked about last week, they shared what they had seen God doing during, among the Gentiles. The uh, conversions were obviously genuine. People were receiving the Holy Spirit, just like the Jewish people had. Uh, their lives were being changed and transformed. Churches were being started. Things were going great. And from their perspective, we need to let this go. We need to let the Spirit roll. Well, so Paul and Barnabas spoke, and then Peter spoke next. And Peter, of course, was one of the twelve. And Peter had relate, was relating his experiences, that is, if you remember, uh, the vision of the sheet that was lowered down from heaven, uh, the story about how Peter had always thought there were unclean people and clean people and, uh, and unclean animals and clean animals, but a sheet came down from heaven and the voice from God saying, do not call anything common or unclean that I have made clean. So he remembered that, told him about that. He also recounted how he had been given what was called the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that he had the privilege to, to preach the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles. And Cornelius had been the first Gentile to respond to that message. And they had all been invited to come to Jesus and had personally had seen that many times. And so he talked about that and said the Jewish law required works 
for salvation, but now through Christ, their hearts are going to be cleansed by faith, and they're going to be saved by grace. And he also gave a compelling argument that maybe they hadn't thought about. They said, why would we want to put a yoke or what he called a burden on the Gentiles by requiring them to keep the law, which we ourselves had never been able to do anyway? We can't do it. Why should we expect them to do it? Nobody could keep all the law. And so he concludes his thoughts by adding, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We are saved by grace, not by our good works. And Peter's words had a silencing effect on the church gathering. So everybody's sitting there, they're kind of thinking about that, made them think. The next guy to step up was James. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus. James is the one who wrote the book of James later in the New Testament. James had been an unbeliever. Jesus' half-brothers had never really believed in him through most of his ministry, seemingly. But after the resurrection, James became a, became a believer and, a, and became an elder and a church leader and seemingly may have even been the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. He was well-respected, so he stepped up and he reminded them that God had called Abraham, who was their forefather. He had called him when he was a Gentile. He's like, wait a minute, we, we came from Gentiles. That's our ancestors are Gentiles. And also, he quoted from the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet, who said, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things known from long ago. So Amos is saying God originally planned to regroup and to bring the Gentiles in as well. And that David's kingdom, which had been broken and destroyed, would be rebuilt. But this time he would bring in all families, all people to come to God. Well, the first thing they want to clarify here is that the works of the Old Testament law didn't save people. It was not their works that saved them. They were saved by grace through faith. And there would be no discussion, no giving on that issue. So the Gentile believers should not be troubled with the Jewish ritual laws. They, we're not going to burden them with all the things that we could never do ourselves. That's, that's off the table as well. But also these Jewish uh, believers or converts are going to have to, you know, make some concessions as well. So the Jews are saying, we're not going to require them to be Jews. But these Gentile believers, have, they have to make some concessions if we're going to find a compromise we can all live with. So the problem would be that these churches would come together and they were not separated in churches. They were Jewish and Gentile Christians together, they would come in contact with, with Jewish Christians who would still keep and value the Jewish traditions and sacrifices and festivals and unclean foods and clean foods and the act of circumcision, which in that day was uniquely Jewish practice. So the issue was, how do we compromise and, and give each of these two groups of people guidance so that they can get along with and live together and worship together and yet still uphold the gospel and the spirit of the gospel message. So James has their attention, and he makes a proposal that gained the approval of the whole church and became their Jew-Gentile policy, all right? Acts chapter 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So there are basically four requirements of the Gentiles that are going to be asked of them in order to get along, and we'll give them a pass so they don't have to, have, have to become Jews. The first one was that they need, they need to abstain from things 
polluted by idols or offered to idols. And this would primarily be meat that they might purchase in the marketplace that had been killed and offered to idols. Now, keep in mind that the Jewish people, they would make sacrifices to God uh, all, you know, several times a year. They would bring, make these sacrifices. Many times that meat was consumed by God. But in the idol sacrifices, they would also offer animals as well. And so some suggest that in that day, it might even be difficult to even find meat in the marketplace that hadn't been offered to an idol of some sort. They had all kind of idols, and there was one way that they worshiped them. So the, the practice was very common. But it was an issue there, and it's mentioned several times in the New Testament. Several times it came up, not just here, other places as well. And the reason is that some of the people, like the Jews, would find the practice sacrilegious. You and I, who, who you know, know about Jesus and, and know what God wants, we wouldn't want to be eating meat that had been offered to an idol. I wouldn't. Uh, I would feel like that's kind of sacrilegious. Wouldn't want to do that. Other people who may have been Gentiles who had once worshipped those idols had turned from them, but they might still feel a sense of connection to that worship if they ate this meat. So it was good for some, but other people had no problem with that at all. But if anyone in the community did have an objection, everybody else should honor their concerns. You know, this is what the Bible calls the law of love. The law of love is that you care enough for a fellow believer that you're going to make a personal sacrifice to them and not cause them to stumble. So in other words, if you know of someone that you are around that has a concern, issue, or feels like something is wrong, then you should not blatantly do that just because you feel like you have the freedom to, because it's not, it doesn't seem wrong to you. That's the law of love, that you respect other believers and that you don't cause a stumbling block by doing something they think might be wrong. Now, so in, in that day, if an unbeliever uh, were to invite a Christian into their home and boast that the meat in the meal had been offered to an idol, you know, I bought it really cheap in the marketplace because it was offered to an idol. It doesn't mean anything to me. But the Bible says that the Christian, because of the law of love, should refrain from eating it. Not because that he thought it was anything wrong with it, but to clarify he didn't worship that idol. To kind of keep the lines clear. So that, that was a big issue in that day, and they wanted to, to clarify that. Do not eat meat offered to idols. Secondly, abstain from sexual immorality. This really isn't optional for any Christian. Uh, but it was important to mention at this, at, at this place in time, because while the Jews had very strict laws about morality, they were very clear about that, um, sexual immorality, the Gentile and the Greek culture was the opposite. I mean, their culture was anything goes. You know, they were obsessed with sexuality with no limits. For example, they had uh, temples to the goddesses that would be where prostitutes lived, and they, part of their worship, they said, was to go and, uh, and, and have sex with these prostitutes. So it was so loose and so far out there that you know, they said, we need to let people know this is wrong. And new believers are going to have to act, uh, set godly boundaries on their lives. When I thought about this, I thought, you know what? Our culture today clearly and closely mirrors their culture in that day. I mean, in the world, anything and everything goes, and we're just blown away every time we hear more and more. But the Bible teaches that sex is a gift from God designed to be enjoyed exclusively within a committed relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible draws those parameters. However, when sex is engaged in outside of this, it becomes an act of sexual immorality. Throughout the Bible, God warns his people against sexual immorality, saying it is a sin 
against our own body. The Bible implies that sexual immorality is a greater sin because it's sin against ourselves, but also against the other person, but also maybe more importantly against God himself. The Bible is clear on that. Sexual sin is any action, thought, or desire that violates God's standards for sexual purity. And this includes not only physical act, but also impure thoughts and desires. It can include, but is not limited to adultery, which is sex, uh, engaging in sexual um, relations with someone who's not your spouse, fornication, which is sex outside before marriage, homosexuality, sex with someone of the same sex, lust, which is harboring intense sexual desires for someone other than your spouse, pornography, viewing or engaging in explicit sexual content, sexting, that is sending or receiving explicit sexual messages or images. I could go on and on, but I think you kind of get the picture. The Bible says sex has a very limited, very limited parameters. And all sexual immorality is sternly condemned in the Bible. The Bible is clear that sexual sin is a serious offense against God and oftentimes has serious consequences for those who engage in it. Therefore, it's important that believers understand that. So that's why they, they uh, cleared this up for the Gentiles. You don't, uh, you, you don't engage in the temple prostitution or casual sex or the culture, all those things. You have very clear lines. Today, some people try to minimize um, the Bible's teaching about sexual immorality. Uh, unbelievable when I read it. It always catches my attention, the headlines do. So unbelievable heresy uh, about this uh, in, in our culture today. But God is clear about its danger. So that's number one and two. I, meat uh, given to idols and sexual immorality. Three and four are put together. Abstain from things strangled and from blood. I put them together because they are very similar. These two things, like the first, like the uh, meat offered to idols, were primarily concessions asked of the Gentiles in order to keep unity with the, with the Jewish believers. Now, the Jewish concerns for the handling of blood uh, really goes all the way back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 9, where after the flood, God allowed Noah and his family uh, to begin eating the flesh of animals. So before the flood, seemingly, people were vegetarians. Uh, but after the flood, God said, Noah, you know all those clean animals that you had on the ark? Uh, you can now eat them. And I was just thinking they were probably sick and tired of them, and we're glad to kill a few of them, I imagine, you know, to get off that ark and, and get away from there. So from that point forward, they could eat animals at that point, but they forbid them to eat the blood. Why not the blood? Well, a deeper understanding of that is in Leviticus chapter 17. God says, for the life of, an, of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonements for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So there's two things that come from that. First of all, blood is sacred because blood represents life. Blood represents life. When blood is gone, so is life. The life is in the blood. That's pretty obvious. The second thing, that within the sacrificial system, the lifeblood is the means by which atonement was made for the person who is making the sacrifice. So the blood is important. The sacrifice, the death of the animal was how the blood was shed, but the blood was important there. And since blood is life, it must be poured out 
for sins to be forgiven. That was the whole idea of the sacrificial system that began all the way back with Adam uh, and, and the sons of Adam. So that's important to know. Blood is sacred. You know, I think about this uh, when I was growing up, a little kid left an impression on me. My dad worked in a packing house uh, where they killed beef and hogs. And it was a rough place with a lot of rough people in downtown Louisville that, uh, that he worked. And uh, I always wanted to work there on, on the summers because they paid really good. But dad said, no, no way are you going into that. Because I'm not going to be around those people. But he used to tell me that when some of those rough guys that lived there, when they killed the animals, they would bleed them. They would catch the hot blood and they would drink it. And that always still makes me a little queasy when I think about that. And I just think about how disgusting that was in a lot of ways. By the way, let me just say this to kind of help some of you. Uh, when you get a rare steak, that red you see is not blood. I didn't know this. That is not blood. It actually is a protein called uh, myglobin, uh, which like hemoglobin, you know, that is what makes your blood turn red. This protein uh, and water mixed together. So when you see that, when it's cut, it is not blood. It is this protein and water. So your steak is not really raw, even though you might think that. So maybe you feel better about eating a raw steak, all right? Hopefully so. Anyway, so the importance of blood is why God chose the sacrificial system in order for sin to be forgiven. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a pretty blanket statement. Without the shedding of blood, there cannot be any forgiveness of sins. So that's why in that day, a perfect animal would be chosen a lamb without a spot or blemish, no broken legs, no scars or wounds. A lamb was chosen to, uh, to, in order for the blood to be shed for a person's sins to be forgiven, for atonement to be made. However, the life and the blood of an animal will never equal the value of the life of a human being because we're made in the image of God. An animal is not, they may, may love your animal, but they don't, they're not as valuable as a human being is. So in the Old Testament, when they gave, made these sacrifices, and they made countless sacrifices throughout the year, and thousands when they dedicated the temple, you might read about all of that. So in the Old Testament, these sacrifices only rolled the sins forward. They didn't totally forgive the sins. It, it's kind of took them away temporarily, and it, and it um, kind of pushed them forward to the point where a suitable and complete sacrifice would totally pay for those sins and erase them. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, it's impossible for the blood of goats, bulls and goats to take away sin. So a, an animal sacrifice would never totally, it would push it forward, but never remove it. And that's where Jesus comes along. Everything in the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to Jesus and his coming. In Exodus chapter 12, it talks about the blood of a lamb was posted on the top and the, door, the sides of every door frame as a sign that death had already taken place and that the death angels should then pass over the people of Israel. This was when they were leaving Egypt. Uh, God was leading them out. And the death angel was coming as the final plague to destroy the, um, the Egyptian, the firstborn of every Egyptian family, so they would let the Israelites go and be free. And they put the blood of a, of a lamb on the doorpost and the death angel would pass over. That's why they still have the Passover feast today. But showing that the debt and atonement had already been made. And in Jesus, God made the ultimate sacrifice when he gave his one and only son to die on the cross for us. Jesus came to offer the pure, complete, 
and everlasting sacrifice to make the final payment for our sins. When Jesus poured out his blood on the cross, he forgave the sins of the people who had lived before him. Those sins had been rolled forward to his coming. The sins of those who were in the moment sinning and even those who killed him who repented later and the sins of everyone who has lived since his death, including you and I. So the blood of Jesus has complete and total removement of sin and atonement for all sin. And that's why the blood of Jesus is so powerful. You know, the Bible tells us that the blood has the power to do so many things. I just jotted down a few. His, power, his blood has the power to redeem us, that is to free us from slavery, to pay our ransom, to wash away our sin by his blood shed, to forgive us of our sin, to free us, to justify us and save us, to cleanse our guilty conscience, to sanctify us or to make us holy, to open the way to the presence of God, to give us peace and to overcome the enemy. The blood of Jesus has that kind of power. In fact, there's nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus. And that's why we need to just treasure the thought of Jesus dying for us. It is the blood of Jesus and our experiences with it, the Bible says, that will one day bring the final defeat of Satan. This is in Romans chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice say, now have, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Satan and his demons are destroyed by the blood of the lamb. It saves us, it destroys him. Only those, however, who've been covered with the blood and washed by the blood of the lamb will be saved. That's what the Bible says. So we're gonna be cleansed by Jesus' blood when we give our lives to him. And you know, I think it's appropriate that whenever we think about baptism, when our sins are washed away, you know, we don't obviously use blood to do that, but the, the water's symbolic of the washing of our sins by removing them. You know, the old song says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sang the song, there's power in the blood. Power in the blood. It really is in the power in the blood of Jesus Christ. So as I wrap up today, let me just say this, that we are washed and cleansed by the blood. When we give our, our lives to him, we're symbolically cleansed. When we take communion and the little cup of juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus shed for us. We come in contact with that symbolically of what Jesus did for us. Blood is so important in the big picture of atonement for us and for our salvation. And my prayer is that every one of us have experienced the washing of our sins away through the blood of Jesus. And we call upon the blood of Jesus. And if you haven't done that, and that maybe that sounds a little strange, a little weird, I'd love to talk to you about that and and kind of develop that a little bit and tell you about how God's big plan makes that work. But the most important thing is that you have that connection with him and you have it through Jesus Christ. You've made that decision. I'm going to be up front here if you want to talk, if you want someone to pray with you, I'll be available to do that as well. Uh, but let's let this be our time of response to him as we just ponder and think about his love for us, the love of a God who would give his only son, knowing that he would come down and be put to death but knowing also that his blood would be the reason that we're saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, that you and your wisdom had a plan, <coughs> a plan that began long ago, but 
a plan that all pointed to Jesus. And then when Jesus came, that plan was totally fulfilled and put in place. God, I'm grateful that today we uh, can, can find our forgiveness of our sins through the, the shedding of a perfect lamb, the lamb of God. God, I'm grateful that, that these Old Testament sacrifices, I'm thankful we don't do that anymore. But God, we don't have to because we have the ultimate sacrifice that was given for us. And Lord, I pray that all of us here would know that we are safe within the blood, having been washed away, washed of our sins, set free. And then, Lord, we can come to you through Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you. I pray for each heart, each soul here today that they do know you in a personal relationship, a personal way. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.